0: Welcome to New Books in Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I'll be speaking with Stephen Lee Nash, author of the book Create or Die, Essays on the Artistry of Dennis Hopper, published in 2016 by the Amsterdam University Press. In these essays, Naish looks at different aspects of Hopper's career as a filmmaker, an actor, an artist, and an important person in the history of film. Welcome to Stephen Lee Nash. Hi, Steve. It's great to talk to you. Hey, Joel. It's great to speak to you, too. So you've got a collection of essays here, although you've wrote them all. I mean, I'm used to – I have interviewed authors where they've been the editor of a collection of essays, but in this particular case, you actually wrote all the essays. So uh, while we're talking – the same subject, Dennis Hopper, throughout, rather than uh, just writing a through book on it, you – Took the idea of coming up with specific aspects of Hopper and writing individual essays about each part, which is, I think, is a very interesting and useful way to look at when you're trying to do a biographical uh, work of some sort. But let's start with some background. The podcast is obviously devoted to authors, so I always like to learn something about what leads people to specific writing projects. What are your educational and writing experiences?
1: Yeah, thanks Joel. Um so um possibly uh a little unconventional compared to some of the authors that you may um speak to on your podcast. I actually left school when I was um sixteen, which is uh kind of a perfectly reasonable thing to do in the UK. You can leave at sixteen, or you at least you could and have a career. So this was in the in the kind of late late nineties. And uh I left with pretty much uh not much of an education actually. Um we have GCSEs in England and I left with maybe two. But initially, I, I got a job when I was sixteen. So this was like 1996, and I got a job in a in a this independent camera shop in the uh, in the town that I grew up in, uh, which is Leicester in England. And um, I was uh, so I was working there full time, and at this point, really, I had no idea what what cameras really did or editing software, what it was for or anything like that. And I wasn't a salesperson, so I wasn't really trying to sell this stuff. I was, a, I was actually working in the dispatch department of uh, this video, uh, sort of its camera shop. So I was handling the goods and not really using it. But over time, I kind of drifted onto the shop floor and I would watch my colleagues kind of using this, uh, you know, demonstrating this equipment to, uh, to potential customers. And I guess uh, it must have just absorbed somehow because sort of two years after work, after two years of working at this camera shop, I decided that I would go back to college to uh, reset my GCSEs and to uh, try and get myself a, a, at least uh, like a half decent education. And um, I, I decided that I would go into the media and production Initially I actually just wanted to become like a music journalist or something like that you know I had that that kind of uh, that kind of ambition um but when I started this uh, this course um which was initially just a one year um basic kind of introductory to like media and communication and actually I ended up staying for another two years because I enjoyed it so much um I got really into the filmmaking aspects of the of the of the course it was a very practical course um, this was at Leicester College, um, and my uh, my my tutor was uh, a guy called Matthew Pell, who's this uh, who was a really great guy and um, you know really kind of opened up film filmmaking, but also film theory as well. So um, sort of through my time there, I got actually I kind of really didn't want to be be a music journalist anymore. I kind of wanted to be a filmmaker. and uh, I got really into this. Uh, you know, cameras and, and the editing software. And a, a lot of it was, I think, through just os- osmosis of being close to, uh, to cameras and initially, um, when I was 16. And then, uh, that, that course ended. And I guess I was like 21 at the time. And I felt like I'd, I'd learned a great deal of really good, like film theory and, and film practice and, I was, uh, I was still working like a full-time job as well, although I'd moved on. I was working at a bookstore now. And, um, I decided that, uh, not to go to university at this point, um, because i had three years of kind of study anyway. But I decided what I would do is kind of start my own kind of one-man band production company. And it was called, initially it was called Kill Film and then it moved into Frame Drop Film and, um, you know, just being like a 21-year-old, my interests were going to uh, going to clubs, going to go and see bands live, and I just kind of wanted to mix that. So initially, I just used like a small amount of money to buy some cheap editing software, uh, cheapish kind of digital camera, and I just went out to like gigs uh, with my camera and just like filmed bands basically bands that were like in Leicester and bands that would pass through and yeah I I basically just kind of developed a kind of small reputation around the the live music scene in Leicester of being like a guy to approach and maybe maybe he'll film your band for like next to no money which initially it was I think like the first two years I maybe made 20 pounds or something like that in, uh, in in kind of money. So I wasn't making any money, but I was really enjoying it just being in that kind of environment, you know, live live venues, hanging out with bands and, you know, know, kind of hanging out till like two in the morning, just, uh, enjoying that. And then, um, yeah, that, so I, I I did some really great work, I think, you know, personally, um, with, 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 uh, you know, bands that kind of came through my hometown and bands that also were living there too. And I made like a, um, a documentary film, um, about sort of four bands within, within that, within Leicester and kind of strung that together with like no money at all. And uh, I was pretty proud of the fact that I made, made this kind of almost feature length film. It was kind of like 85 minutes, I think long and, you know, well, that's I was, feature length, eighty-five minutes. Is yeah, eighty-five minutes. I, I think. Yeah, I think I stretched it out with a few kind of little uh bizarre little montages in the middle and things like that. But um, a long credit sequence at the end. <laughs> yeah, stretching out the. Yeah, actually, really stretching out the credit sequence quite a bit there. I think I banked. Yeah, pretty much uh, everything I could think of, including, like, the local supermarket down the road that sold me sandwiches whenever I needed to have, like, a little in the or whatever. Well, unfortunately, you um, should have had
0: them give you the sandwiches. Then they would have been paying for their advertising. But.
1: Yeah, Sounds good. Sounds <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, so that, I, I felt like I did some pretty good stuff. But, you know, I got to, like, the age of uh, 25, uh, 20, well, maybe 26, 27, actually. And, you know, hanging around sweaty, smoky uh, gig venues was just becoming a little bit tiring, you know, and I, you know, I'd I'd met the girl that I was going to marry, you know, so, and so the idea of kind of settling down a little bit kind of came into play and uh, hanging out till like two in the morning was just not, was just not going to be feasible anymore. And, you know, I I had a full-time job as well, you know, so I was getting, I was getting pretty worn out. Um, so about that age, I thought, well, you know what? Now maybe may, maybe it's a good time to try something different, and uh, I actually went back to university this time. So I actually studied with um, the Open University, um, which I don't know. Do you do you happen to know the Open University? What that might be? No, I, that doesn't sound. I'm, oh, okay. I've heard of it, but it probably yeah, doesn't sound. I don't familiar. know what your equivalence would be. You probably have many It's state by state in the US, but it's a by correspondence university basically. It's no, there's no. There's no buildings. It's just all... Oh, well, we
0: have online universities all over the place. Yeah, the, yeah. The um, it's, States, obviously, so it's huge. It's probably, but, the, the Open and I, I've heard of correspondence universities.
1: Yeah. The Open University was the first, I think. It started in the 1970s. You could watch um, Open University programs at like 2 in the morning on Channel 4 or something like that. But now, obviously, you can do it all online. You can do it whenever you want. But, yeah, we used to have people you know, um, wake up at two in the morning to watch the open university programs in the 1980s and stuff like that. So yeah, it's moved on quite a bit, but this was the best way for me to do it. Um, so I I actually studied a bunch of different things. I studied, first of all, I studied, uh, creative writing. Um, and then I, uh, I studied essay writing and then I studied some politics. So basically I kind of feel like there are all my, my experience, from the age of 16, it's kind of now all rolled into my writing as an adult, basically. So that's kind of my my background.
0: Yeah. It's funny. You were, when you were describing how you first learned film by uh, learning about the equipment. Yes. That is actually pretty standard. I mean, if, you, if, if you've ever heard or read about some of the probably the more well-known filmmakers of the present day or some of the, what we would now consider to be the giants like Spielberg and, and Lucas and, and even Coppola. They spent a large amount of their early, especially Spielberg and, and, and Lucas. They talk about, they were just fooling around with eight millimeter cameras as they were kids. And they started to learn the technology materials first. And then they started to learn storytelling as they went forward. So it's, it's not that strange of a way to do it. And of course you then, and then they ended up going to schools. So your Career path, so to speak, is 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 quite normal. It seems for our modern filmmakers these days. So it's it's not a complete yeah, surprise. That's,
1: that's, yeah, that is very true. Actually, unfortunately, um, you know, my film career <laughs> well. is, it's a sideline with my actual career in as a bookseller and now as a library assistant. So no. I, I I earned a living doing other things that I still enjoy because obviously I'm, I'm big on um you know on books, but. Mm. Uh, yeah, there was not much opportunity to earn a lot of money. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that is a, that's a really good point, mate. Yeah. Um, the, so, other yeah. Good, the other good
0: thing is that uh, nowadays you don't have to – that you have it better than them in the sense that, as you just pointed out, you don't have to spend huge amounts of money on equipment and even no. editing. You're, you can use the same editing software that uh, – if you have the right equipment that they use to make – feature length film you know that the, the, the full studios do so yeah it, it is a positive you grew I think you were coming up at the perfect time as far as both education and uh, the technology part
1: yeah I think I think you're right I mean um working for the the video store uh, sorry not video store the, the camera store uh, back in Leicester it wasn't like my first exposure to uh to video cameras my dad had like the super VHS cameras that were right, big in ninety eight and and literally big as well. Like they were unmanageable. And so I remember him kind of on our holidays slugging this uh huge thing around his neck and uh you know just being completely impractical. But by the time I was here we we were just getting into digital cameras and they were getting pretty palm sized and small. So yeah, it was it was a decent time for sure. So
0: what Okay. Obviously this book is Dennis Hopper is about Dennis Hopper. Have you written anything else prior to this about any place else? Or is this your first published work?
1: Um, I have a collection of essays published, um, um in 2014 called, uh, USA, uh, which was published by zero books, which are, uh, they're a uh, kind of uh, small independent, uh, radical press. And, um, I, I went with them for this, uh, for that first book. And, um, so, yeah, that, that's been out for a couple of years. And then throughout sort of uh, from sort of 2013 onwards, I've been writing, um, you know, kind of film, film politics, cultural essays, articles. And, you know, just since then, like clocking up quite a few by now, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: So this is my second book. Yeah, That's good. Now, before we get in depth, did you write these essays sort of? One at a, you know, at, at the same time that is one right after the other, or some of these things that have that you started on and have been sitting around, and you finally said, "Well, I think the best way to, to, to publish these or to get these published is to just bring them together."
1: Or yeah, was- I, I think it kind of I don't know it kind of happened by accident in some ways. Um, when uh, so in two thousand and twelve, my my wife and I and our uh, our young son who was just uh, a year, well he was eighteen months at this point um we decided to move we were living in the uk and we decided to move to, to canada my wife's canadian um so anyway it made it made moving pretty quick uh, pretty easy but um we uh you know uh the, the situation in the uk at that time was uh wasn't so great you know she'd lost her job i was losing mine there was we had the big recession there was lots of cuts so it kind of it was making life difficult anyway in the UK. And so we, we moved to Canada in, in 2012. And for uh, for about four or five months, I just couldn't work. Like, I wasn't allowed to work in Canada until I actually got, like, my my visa through. Um was just, like, a work visa. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, like, I was basically free to, to do some, like, writing. And all these ideas that I'd had about writing kind of film related to politics, related to culture, just sort of like was finally, I had a bit of time to just sort of sit down and do it. So I started in in 2012, and you know, within like a year, well, within the space of a year, I had uh, you know this this collection of essays, and I thought this is great, you know. And I think one day I just decided, oh, what, what would it be like if I just put all these essays in one word document together, and how would that look? And, you know, I was just surprised that there was kind of like almost like a running narrative throughout these, uh, throughout these essays. And, um, I, so yeah, I submitted it to a, to a publisher and they worked well, to zero books and they kind of went with it. And I was just like, oh, this is, you know, this was, this was fantastic. It was, I mean, I think it was a little bit of a stroke of luck, but you know, I was really happy because zero, and being a bookseller in the UK as well, I'd come across zero books a, a few times and, uh, uh, you know, I was always really interested in their work. So, yeah, so that's kind of how, yeah, that's how came, the first one came about, really. It was just by mistake. And uh, at the time, I was already writing this Dennis Hopper book. So, yeah, it kind of worked out well. So what,
0: I mean, you talk about it a little bit in the introduction to the book of what suddenly made you think of, you know, what led Dennis Hopper to you, so to speak. But could you talk a little bit about... um I think you, you you talk about it as I say. Blue Velvet seemed to be the film that that really struck you, and yeah. as particularly as it relates to Dennis Hopper. Yeah. What was uh, what was the background of that, and, and how did that lead you to deciding? Well, I need to find as much as possible about this particular uh, artist.
1: So. Um... I think like Dennis Hopper had kind of cropped up through my kind of early film viewing. You know, he'd been in Speed, which was a pretty big film for me. But he, you know, he was just the generic bad guy in that movie. He'd been in like um, uh, like um Waterworld, which, uh, again, just the generic bad guy. There just didn't seem much, you know, at the time during that kind of 90s period when he was appearing in a lot of those big budget movies, he didn't seem to have a lot of depth. Um but you know when i when i got to uh to college and um started learning a little bit more about film i really started immersing myself more in in older older films to be honest you know films from the 60s from the 70s and i remember i went to uh to virgin megastore um which no longer is, sadly no longer exists and uh they were selling off their videos for like um i think it was like 2 pound each or 3 for 5 pounds so I was in there and I was just like, you know, OK, you know what films have been mentioned recently in our in our film classes and uh, Mean Streets and Taxi Driver were two. So I, I found them and I picked those up and I was like, OK, I, I need one more. I need one more film to make up the, the five pound deal. And uh, I, I just happened to see Easy Rider there and it just it, I'd heard about it a little bit. And uh, it looked cool. You know, the cover looked great. The two rambling, you know, motorcycles across the highway and stuff. And so I, I, I purchased it. I took it home. And during that weekend, I kind of watched all three movies. And um, I think Easy Rider initially just stu- struck a chord with me, uh, a little bit more than Mean Streets or Taxi Driver, actually, just because at the time, you know, I was I was uh, listening to a lot of kind of 60s and 70s music. So I was listening to Dylan you know, The Birds, Hendrix, The Doors. And I was reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, by Hunter S. Thompson and On the Road. So, like, I almost had this kind of, like, uh, the film almost was like a visual representation of all the things that I was kind of interested in, like this kind of road journey with this awesome soundtrack as well. So uh, Easy Rider just kind of struck me. And then, you know, it came up, directed by Dennis Hopper and starring Dennis Hopper. But even then, like, I was pretty amazed that kind of this guy, the guy from Speed directed this movie back in the 60s. And I was pretty amazed by that. But um, to be fair, like it was still his co-star, Peter Fonda, was still like the coolest thing in that movie. And uh, for a while, it, if, if things had maybe if I hadn't seen Blue Velvet, maybe I would have wrote the book uh, Create or Die Essays on the Archery of Peter Fonda. I don't know, because for a little while there, I was really into Peter Fonda. Um but yeah, I, I don't know, like I, I happened to just be watching a few years later I happened to just be watching TV, like Channel Four, which is the UK channel, which has like a bit more kind of edgy films and TV programs. And um Blue Velvet came on. I'd seen like a few David Lynch movies like Lost Highway and Doom. But Blue Velvet had kind of passed me by. But again, it was a movie that I kinda of heard about from film magazines, from film class and things like that. So I thought, okay, you know what, I'll watch this. It's, it was late at night. I, I drank like half a bottle of wine anyway. I thought, yeah, I can stay up and watch this. This will be a, this will be a thing. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was watching it thinking this is, this is kind of a nice, you know, woozy kind of film. You know, it's a kind of noir, um, kind of gentle, but then Frank Booth, Dennis Hopper comes, makes an entrance into the film and things kind of get pretty nasty from there. Um, and I think I had that first kind of out of body experience almost watching that film because I was probably, you know, my whole like body posture changed. I was, I think I was lying on the couch with a glass of wine in my hand. And then um, he came on, Dennis Hopper came on as Frank Booth. And by the end of the, the, the scene ended, Um, which is the scene uh, initially where he he kind of barges into Isabella Rossellini's uh, apartment and kind of brutally abuses her. Um, I think by the end of that scene, I was like the glass of wine was on the floor. I was like sitting straight up and I hadn't even noticed that I'd moved. It was like one of those really strange things where time just stood still and I I kind of came out of it and uh, I was a completely different, position or and yeah so i continued watching the film and it just kind of made this huge like splash and i think i went back and i watched easy rider again um i've been a big fan of apocalypse now but again dennis hopper in that was kind of was kind of crazy where he kind of plays this crazy photojournalist uh right at the end of the film and uh i kind of went back and i just thought man this guy's actually he's actually a genius like i've got to go and find more dennis hopper movies So that was kind of where that, where that began for sure.
0: When, when I was reading through the first essay, which is basically a a review of his career.
1: Oh yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: Reading through that. And I think if anybody reads the book and reads that chapter, they're going to say he was in that. Oh, that's right. He was in that. And you, like you say, apocalypse now, I remember that he's in there, and I, you know, as soon as I read Dennis Hopper, I I did the same thing. I said, "You're right. He was in that because, for for one thing, that movie's got so much going for it as it is that to I don't always remember who. No, it's got so many cameos. Yeah, remembering that Hopper was in it at the end. Oh, yeah, you're right. And then some of his other works, you just don't remember, oh, that's right, he wasn't that, because he wasn't, he wasn't one of those actors who had to be the focal point. He was perfectly willing to do, he, he would do a movie like Blue Velvet, but then he was perfectly happy to do a smaller role in other kinds of films, just because he felt... You know, if he felt that was a good role for him and if particularly if uh, directors wanted him and I'm sure that had a lot to do with it as well. He had he, he obviously by the time of Apocalypse Now and even later, he had a good reputation for what he could do. And and I think that's one of the reasons why he sometimes pops up and you say, oh, that's right. He was in that movie. Yeah, Definitely.
1: There's a there's a there's a whole bunch of actors similar to that. Um but yeah, he just kind of jumps out a little bit more i i I remember watching Apocalypse now, um when I was maybe like sixteen or seventeen, and having no idea um that who Colonel Kurtz was, you know who Marlin Brando was, who Dennis Hopper was. I just kind of remember watching that movie, and then when he turns up, I thought, Is that Colonel Kurtz? because if that's colonel Kurtz this is this is really the most messed up movie, you know, but then you know it's revealed, and then you know Marlin Brando is Colonel. Kurtz but I remember just feeling like man I'm disappointed that uh, that, that guy's
0: not Kyle Kurtz well, yeah well that's unfortunate the one thing that most <laughs> people especially when it first came out and I don't I don't know if it's changed I haven't gone back lately and read anything up to you know more current about Apocalypse Now most people said that until you know the movie was absolutely spectacular until they finally got to to, 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 the, to where Kurtz was and that's when things got crazy Yeah. So maybe it made sense that Dennis Hopper showed up at that moment. I think so. Yeah, it does make sense
1: for sure. Yeah.
0: So as I say, your book is in—it's a series of essays um, with an introduction to the whole set. Plus, then your first essay is a review of his career. Um, Yes. And then you devote other chapters on other essays either to general topics or to specific films. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the overview, as I've already mentioned, was a very good way of, of learning, for especially for people who may have heard of Dennis Hopper or, like you say, may have seen a film or two that he was in, and then you suddenly get an overview of what he's done.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you talk about, uh, in that first chapter, then, a number of his films, and, and, and also, more importantly, the the... the arc of his career because obviously for a variety of reasons he definitely had a reputation and even though he had successes he also had a number of failures and probably the most jarring example of that was the last movie which um you had a lot of good things to say about it but obviously at the time it did not go over very well talk let's talk a little bit about the last movie as an example of maybe hopper as misunderstood
1: yeah quite possibly um you know he had he had a huge success him and him and peter fonda uh and terry southern as well who doesn't get an awful lot of credit he's kind of been written out of the picture but you know terry southern with a screenwriter and uh he you know um he helped write the screenplay and i think he deserves some credit for sure but you know, Hopper and Fonda, um, pretty much wrote their own ticket in, in kind of New Hollywood and, uh, after Easy Rider, they were given, you know, a bunch of money, which at the time was a lot, but it was probably, it was just a million each to go and make a, make some films, um, separately and Peter Fonda went and made this kind of uh, film, uh, this kind of Western, existential Western called The Hired Hand and Hopper went and made a film called The Last Movie and, uh, the last movie um, was um, was written with a guy called Stuart Stern, who was the screenwriter on um, Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, it was, uh, at, at some point, it was a straightforward movie um, with a, a linear narrative and a, and a, a straightforward story about um, a film crew that go to um, Peru, and set up their film um, apparatus and film sets and they, they make a film and then they leave and they leave all their kind of like uh, their sets behind and uh, and I guess it was like the effects of Hollywood or the effects of uh, modernity on, on kind of uh, indigenous culture. Um, but yeah, somewhere along the line, editing, and this, you can you can kind of go and watch a film called The American Dreamer, which is a film that was made during the post-production of the last movie, and kind of see where it all went wrong. Um, the film is great. Like, actually, I think it's a real, like, uh, monumental piece of uh, uh, from that time. Um, but, you know, I can understand the audience is kind of loving Easy Rider, and, and the film's coming out at that time we've just been like so confused by this the, the movie that eventually became the last movie because it's a disjointed narrative, um, completely non-linear. Uh, but then there's also these you know bizarre performances um, from Hopper from the other members of the cast. Um, it's a pretty jarring kind of soundtrack as well. Uh, but yeah, if you look at the uh American Dreamer, the documentary that was made during the post production of, of that film, you can see where where Hopper was was so distracted. You know, he's 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 lost it on drugs and drink. Um he's got his like bunch of uh hangers on that are just like uh, you know, hanging on to him and uh kind of distracting him. He's got his groupies. Um it's a pretty like uh yeah, it's 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 a pretty dark film to kind of watch. Um but you can see where the last movie went wrong um, but I think within time um it was it was ahead of its time uh, in some respects so um i I think that it's today and I think it's going to be viewed today as an actually a really uh, a really good movie in in some respects but uh it's an art movie it's an artistic movie right.
0: unfortunately, there are a number of examples of people who made a splash with an initial um, film or an initial performance who were then signed up to say, here, have some money and keep going. Yeah. And while some of them were very successful with their next, then there's also the examples of where it didn't go the way that I think
1: the people who were financing them expected exactly them to go. And I think it was the finance the finances of that movie that, uh, that really did pull it because, you know, I mean, it did win an award at Venice, you know, Hopper was always saying that about the last movie, that it, it won the Venice film festival award. Um, I think the best director, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'll have to go back and check, but you know, so it was a uh, well-received critically, uh, at least artistically critically well-received. But I think by the general film critics of, of that time, they were just confused by it. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's, there has been tons of examples, but I don't think it, it didn't need to be that way. In some respects, but it it, it did turn out that way, and uh, I think, um, you know, Hopper is to blame for that a little bit as well, you know, because he was uh, he was pretty wild in the in that decade. You know, the '70s were a pretty uh, were a pretty wild decade for him. So yeah.
0: So, speaking of you know, while we're still talking about overview, in Writing that first chapter where you talk about his uh his career, besides the last movie where you spend a little bit more time on that, what other performances or even you know writing and director uh activities, do you feel like he doesn't get good credit doesn't get the proper due that you think he deserves in his in his overall work things that people may have forgotten or May have never even thought, oh yeah, that's right, that was Dennis Hopper.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think a really interesting period of Dennis Hopper's career is, uh, is the 1970s, pretty much from the last movie, which was 71, up until, um, his next directorial film, which was uh, a film called Out of the Blue, which was 79. Um, we can talk about that in a minute if you like, but, um, that period uh, of like, you know, nine or 10 years in between. Uh, where he was not working in Hollywood really at all, but he was working um, uh, abroad in in Europe and in Australia and uh, in Canada as well, and in um, you know very small independent movies in the US. I think that's a really potent time for him because it, you know it was it was a case of quality over quantity. He only made probably about seven or eight films in that period, and that's. Um, like films like tracks, which was from 76, which was Henry Jaglum, where he plays this kind of, uh, this very disturbed Vietnam vet who's traveling across the country. Um, and it's, it's a very, very small, it's got Dean Stockwell in as well. It's a very small film, but it's beautifully acted, beautifully shot. Um, uh, and also, uh, the American friend as well, that he made, um, in Germany. At the time, um, with uh, with vendors, um, again, it's a beautiful performance, and it's uh, that film's actually an adaptation of, uh, of uh, Ripley's Game, and he plays he plays the character Tom Ripley, but if you've watched any of the Ripley movies from you know the kind of 1990s, uh, it's a very different interpretation of that character, um, and then you know you've got Apocalypse Now. And I think the, the kind of the maddest film in his 1970s kind of canon is uh, Mad Dog Morgan, which is a film he made in Australia, uh, where he plays, um, uh, a, a, he actually portrays a real-life bushranger, this guy called Daniel Morgan, who was around in the 1800s, kind of Irish. Um, and uh, he was like a bush ranger an outlaw, and he's crazy in that movie, but... Uh, again it's 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 a, I mean, it's a it's a great film in, in terms of the way that it's shot and help performance is kind of um tragic funny um so yeah i don't know i, I feel like the 70s is a period of time that he's not going to get much credit for because there wasn't a lot of movies made and a lot of them were under the radar i mean I think the biggest movie from that period is apocalypse now so that that whole decade i think it really deserves more credit than it does. And uh, you know, when I'm saying like quantity uh, over quality, I'm, I'm, if you look at like his later work, where he's like making movies from like the late '90s to to the late 2000s, you know, he did a lot of a lot of movies, and there are a lot of straight to DVD stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can pick and you can pick a few gems out of there, but ultimately, you can go back to the '70s, and every film is is worthy of watching just to see how kind of crazy kind of mad his performances can be. You know? So yeah, the 70s, I think, deserves a, a, you know, a real good... Uh, I think people should really watch those movies from that period.
0: I think part of the other issue, especially during that period, is if he was making a lot of films overseas, those mm-hmm. were virtually impossible to see back then. I mean, one of the things I think people who maybe are younger don't know or don't think about it is that if you grew up at the right time, being able to see some of these films were probably almost impossible because if if you if they didn't show them up in a theater, you weren't gonna see it,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah, so it was really down to the yeah uh, yeah the art the art house cinemas to show those movies which were virtually impossible to get hold of. I think the American Friend was a well received movie, but I don't really know how well it was received in the states. And Mad Dog Morgan wouldn't have even been on the radar of any uh, place in in the US at the time, so that would have gone completely unseen. Probably pretty big in in Australia though, because Mad, uh, Daniel Morgan was—it's kind of a legend, kind of like um, yeah, you know. So yeah. But at
0: least nowadays, a lot of these films can be seen, and that does help when, when you're writing a book like yours, which you know is devoted to one person. Yeah, um, Not being, you know, if, if I, for example, when I was younger, I remember reading a book about Frank Capra and I loved the book and it was a great book and everything. But I said to myself, I've never seen any of these films because, mm-hmm. you know, in pre video, you couldn't unless they happened to show up on TV. And of course, yeah. that was before cable for a lot of, and in a lot of ways for me, because I'm a little bit older than you. And so it was almost impossible to see some of these films and yet you read about it and you want to see them. I mean, simple things like those kind of issues, seeing Citizen Kane for the first time. Nowadays, it's a piece of cake to see these films. And the best you could hope for was a film class. And I did remember taking a film class in my undergraduate program where I actually saw films that I finally got a chance to see films, and it was on a 16-millimeter projector because that was the only way they could show them.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, if anyone's interested, I've found the last movie – uh, on youtube you can watch it on youtube it's all there probably shouldn't say that they'll probably get yeah. taken down now but uh yeah it's there and uh, it can be seen there for sure in, in pretty good quality too so you can do a whole search like that so
0: let's talk a little bit about some of the other chapters specifically that, that before you know instead of specific films now let's talk a little bit about some of your your generalized topics particularly the first one after the introduction you know after your the overview and that's hit Dennis Hopper and music and you definitely presented it right at the beginning with Easy Rider. Easy Rider definitely has an is an example of an early film that made the most of a rock soundtrack where nowadays those kind of not not the same way anymore obviously but it's just a given that Mm -hmm. uh, you know a movie's going to have different performers doing different songs now of course and so but Clearly, Hopper was one of the first to consider the importance of using rock as a uh, as a soundtrack, and so what? And he clearly picked the right. Like you, you even gave a little bit of a background earlier. The some of the music that was used in that film and the artists, and it definitely presented a, a, a new way of looking at the music. So, what led? What what? What was Hopper's thinking as far as? trying to bring in music from, you know, popular music as opposed to old style soundtracks.
1: So, I mean, you know, my, my thoughts on this really are that, uh, he was, he was placing cultural signposts within, within his directorial films. Um, and you know, um, so when you look at Easy Rider, you know that you're watching a film from the 1960s because of the soundtrack, you know, you can instantly, Recognize those 60s songs. And I think he did the same thing with uh, another film uh, that he made after the last movie, but maybe seven or eight years later um, called out of the blue uh, where he actually, you know, uh, out of the blue is an interesting film because he, he just, he just got a role in that movie. It was a Canadian production and he was uh, cast as the father in this um, kind of melodramatic TV movie. And, uh, and then he, uh, the director of that film uh, walked off set uh, two weeks into production and Hopper took it over and kind of wrote this, uh, rewrote the script, recast a few things and was given, you know, was, was given the opportunity as long as he could bring it in on time uh, and under budget. Um, and, and so he, he got that role. And he, I think, you know, at that time, there was a you know, the, the punk scene was kicking off in the U.S. and the U.K., and uh, he put this punk rock element into that film, um, you know, at a time when that was really the music that people were listening to, or at least a certain amount of people were listening to that. Uh, he, he kind of made that film a very a kind of real punk rock film. And I think it's quite influential in that way. And then when you look at Colors, which was a film he made in 86, um, which was about um, the gangs in, um, in Los Angeles. Uh, again, he, he put this, uh, hip hop soundtrack in it because it represented, it represented the characters basically. And I think that's another thing too, you know, it's the same thing with, uh, with Out of the Blue. It, the punk music in Out of the Blue represents the kind of the punkishness of the, of the characters and the, the kind of sixties music, the, the hippie soundtracks and things like that are really kind of, uh, soundtracking, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, the characters of that film too. So I think that, was, I mean, you know, I, I i think that's kind of what he was doing, you know, is just making his work really current and really recognizable as being from a certain era.
0: And that's where he's, I mean, I think most people who think about Easy Rider, of course, there probably aren't a lot of people who think about it regularly these days, but no question, during the time period, it was the soundtrack that many people will remember because they just weren't used to that kind of a soundtrack when that film came out.
1: Yeah, that It still wasn't being, yeah.
0: you know, that was unusual. And, and now, like yeah. I said before, nowadays it's just normal. But back then it wasn't normal. It was very
1: unusual. I, no, I think that's the same thing with Colors too. I mean, uh, that was a really uh, representative film of kind of uh, the black youth of, uh, of America, and uh, you know, I think it was Chuck D that said, you know, hip hop is the uh, is you know is the TV of America. It's just uh, you know it was representing the lives of black youth at that time. So to really kind of add that soundtrack um, was unheard of, really. You know, there was no there was no hip hop in mainstream, uh, not really hitting the mainstream. And I think that the soundtrack record was actually uh, you know one of the, the biggest selling albums of that year and it kind of brought hip-hop to uh, more national attention i think so yeah
0: yeah there were a couple of filmmakers but you know i'm thinking also of um uh, um you know do the right thing and some other yeah, similar yeah, films spoke. but you're yeah. right he would have been yeah. in that same period so it's definitely yes. no question that-
1: it, yeah it really did hit more of the mainstream in the late 80s but i think Hopper's film uh, you know really did um really did a lot for the, putting hip hop in the mainstream,
0: there. One of the other chapters talks about the movie White Star. And I wanted to talk about this since it's probably one of the only chapters where you devoted it just to basically one film. Some of the other chapters talk about multiple films. And the chapter White Light, White Heat, Actor and Character Collide in White Star. What was it about White Star that led you to decide, well, this is a film I think deserves a chapter all by itself?
1: Um, so if, if you don't mind i'll just actually just do a little history of uh, where this book began because uh um, when i started this project which was like back in uh, 20 uh, 2010 actually i started writing this book um i really wanted to write uh, a very kind of uh pop culture um, book on 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 sort of 10 underappreciated dennis hopper movies that was the that was the mission statement of this book initially. And uh, I, I was searching Amazon um, for copies of films, which I'd never really heard of. And I, I remember I, just, I brought like a bunch. And um, White Star was amongst them. And it was actually the mo- one of the most expensive films to actually get off Amazon. Usually they were just like a couple of pence to uh, to get the film and the postage cost more for, for Amazon to send it to me. Um, but White Star was on there and it was, I think it was like nearly 20, 20 pounds or something like that. It's, that's quite a lot of money from Amazon. And uh, anyway, I got that film and I, I watched, you know, a bunch of these sort of straight to DVD movies and I was really inspired by this book that was, uh, that was published at the time called Seagology, which was about, um, uh, the films of Stephen Seagal. <laughs> so, and, um, that, that was quite a genius book in a way because it took, Stephen Seagull's pretty like awful movies and kind of made a case for them uh to of actually being like amazing. Um it wasn't that convincing but the book itself kind of inspired me to sort of write this book on Dennis Hopper where it was kind of taking a kind of jokey look at some of his uh, films. Um but you know as the year as kind of like I was writing this this uh book it became like unfeasible for me to kind of justify some of the uh films that I was writing about such as like a pretty awful movies from the 90s called like Space Truckers and Tykus and uh, I just thought, man, you know, when when I kind of got like this manuscript uh, a year or so later, I was kind of reading it, thinking, oh man, like this is not the kind of uh, book that I think I want to write anymore because you know I re I was researching Hopper's life and thinking there's so much more to this guy than these these crappy straight to uh, DVD movies, but Amongst that, those movies was a few that I thought really did stand out, and within the book, um, there is still kind of a leftover, a couple of leftover chapters from that original um, kind of mission statement of the of the, of the book. And uh, one of them is um, a, a chapter on the blackout and Acts of Love, and the other one is White Star. And White Star, just I don't know, it was a film. It's, it's White Star is a film from uh, it's a German film from 1984. Kind of the last one of the last films that Dennis Hopper made while being kind of exiled from Hollywood. He would he'd come back a couple of years later with in 1986 with Blue Velvet and Hoosiers and River's Edge. Um, but White Star I think represents a really dark time in Hopper's career, and you can really tell that in the performance because it is a pretty intense, uh intense performance in that it, it isn't a performance at all. It's, he's not really acting in that movie he is just being himself in that movie and it's a pretty wild you know um, it, it's a wild take because you can tell that he's kind of mess you know he's on drugs he's definitely drinking um I think he I think he said in an interview um, a couple of years before he died that you know the worst movie that he made was white star and it took him a lot of drugs to get through that. But you know what? I disagree with him. I think it's actually a really great film. Um, again, it's, it's kind of similar to, uh, to Out of the Blue in that it kind of has like a kind of punk rock element to it. He plays, um, a, a music manager in, in the film to this kind of budding David Bowie type, uh, of, of, of musician. Um, and he basically, uh, ruins this guy's career because he's trying to get as much kind of publicity for his, uh, for his forthcoming album. So he does incredibly like crazy stuff. Like he puts him on stage in front of like a bunch of Berlin punks and he plays this kind of synth music and uh, it's kind of wild. Um I, I just think that it's, it's a real kind of standout film for Hopper, but it, it's a very dark movie to watch because you are basically watching um, someone Who's really, you know, at the bottom of his, uh, of his soul, you know, he's really, uh, yeah, he's really desperate in that movie, I think, to, uh, to get off drugs and get off drink. And, you know, the next year he would, you know, he went into rehab in, in uh, 1985 and, uh, got clean and stayed clean for the rest of his life, you know, so you can just kind of see that that's a real turning point. So really the, the reason that I, I wanted to focus on that film was because um, a lot has been written in, in previous books about Hopper's kind of uh, uh, wild lifestyle and, and the drugs and the drink. Um, but that it always kind of ignores the films that were made during that period. And I think White Star is kind of representative of that kind of debauched period of his life. But there is actually still, you could sort of see that even though he was in that state, he was still producing like incredibly raw performances. So I think it's it's just a worthwhile film to go check out and to write about too it was a joy to write about. So
0: in doing the research for this book, so to speak, which means watching all the films that you watched over time, and I, I lost track a little bit. When was when did you see the first Dennis Hopper film? I, I don't remember if you said specifically. I'm just trying to get a time period as to how long between when you first became aware of Dennis Hopper and, and the ending of the book. I don't know what time period <laughs> that is. Well,
1: I, I don't know if you, if you if you take in things like uh, like Speed. Then, uh, yeah, I mean, probably, you know, I mean, I, I was, you know, when I was a young teenager, Speed was a, was a huge film for me because it was a proper great action movie and, you know, Keanu Reeves was, was was cool in that movie. I'm a big fan of of, of Point Break as well. It's another kind of, kind of guilty pleasure of mine, but, um,
0: and, of course, that film also was probably one of the breakout roles for Sandra Bullock, too, so yeah, it was a exactly. very interesting film for what it did for careers. Uh,
1: exactly. No, it is a very interesting It is a very interesting movie, but at the time it was pure, right. you know, adrenaline rush of a film, but I, I kind of respect it a lot more now as an actually a, uh, you know, kind of
0: genre-defining film. Of course, so my cool. problem with it was, and I, I know it's a silly thing, but I get this way with films sometimes, I said to myself, supposedly he blows himself up at the beginning – of the film and yet they all assume he's dead. And I said, well, didn't they look for body parts? I know. There's really. no way in the world he could have blown himself so much up that there wouldn't be some remnants of something.
1: Some and, yet some they team. all seem to think, yeah, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I know that's But what... that's
0: not Dennis Hopper's fault. He didn't write the film. So,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I guess my original question where I was heading for is what's, what kind of surprises have you, have you found over the years in in viewing Dennis Hopper both as a, a filmmaker and as an actor? I mean how were what what kind of things came along during your 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 study of him that surprised you about him?
1: I, I think you know initially when I set out to write this book, uh, you know as I kind of explained in the last question, I was just sort of thinking that this guy is a, a film presence that deserves to be kind of written about. And I wasn't. I didn't want to sort of write it that straight, but you know, I wanted to take his film work seriously enough to uh, to kind of um, reevaluate some of his some of his uh, older uh, not older films, but his like unseen films. But I think you know, initially, when I when I had that uh, manuscript, when I had that version of the manuscript, I was more surprised that I was more interested in just the other elements of his career. Like, I kind of knew that Dennis Hopper was a bit of an artist and maybe was a bit of a photographer as well, but I didn't really delve into that until I actually started getting into the real research of the book. And, you know, I was just, I was pretty blown away. Like, I can give and take a little bit of, you know, art. It's not totally my thing, but I, I was just blown away by the fact that, like, alongside making movies, he was also taking photographs um, making sculptures um, painting you know that's that's a huge surprise when you think man the guy from the guy from speed from space truckers uh is this incredible photographer is this incredible artist and uh also an art collector as well like he's actually an art connoisseur like he brought some of the early warhol stuff the Marcel Duchamp you know, he's uh, he's kind of like lived his life artistically in the shadows of some of his uh, of his film work, and I think that was that was kind of a big surprise too. That well, yeah, I mean that was a, that was a big surprise. But then also, um, as I was looking into things like, you know, the uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about this chapter, but I'll just quickly mention it now. You know, the uh, the chapter that I talk about where uh, his advertisements and commercials that he did. Um, you know, that's, I mean, I, I, I think I kind of remember the, the, the Ford Cougar advert, which was on in the early 90s, uh, you know, but I was surprised that, oh, it's Dennis Hopper, yeah, in that. and then, you know, you see him throughout, throughout his kind of career, you know, in, in these kind of commercials, and I was just like, Man, okay, so the guy who made the last movie, Out of the Blue, colors easy rider also appeared in an advert for the fort cougar okay that's really interesting because that's kind of like a you know the blurring of high culture and low culture and he seemed to surf that pretty easily like go back and forth between the two i think that's just incredible well there are a
0: number of actors who do television commercials they just choose not to do american television commercials to sort of hide that they're doing television commercials
1: absolutely yeah yeah nicholas cage i think is a great example of that he's he's uh, been in some crazy uh japanese uh television adverts and uh yeah you wouldn't really know unless unless you uh, you know if youtube didn't exist we'd never know this
0: because that's the film that uh, Bill Murray did with Scarlett Johansson and unfortunately it's good. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole premise of why he was in Japan because he was there to do
1: $2 million. Yeah. Um, he's
0: doing, he's getting paid a lot of money to do some television commercials yeah. that would never be seen. Any, and he's well known in the United States, but yeah, you of course can't do television commercials in the United States. And yeah. I think you're right. That's where Hopper decided that he wanted to do something because he wanted to do it. I mean, I yeah. still remember when he showed up in 24 this the first season of 24 at the end towards the end he suddenly showed up as the becoming the overall bad guy of the first season and it was t- total shock because that was before obviously the kind of information gets out you know casting it's pretty obvious anymore who's going to be where but it was a big surprise when he showed up and he made a definite splash for those few episodes he was on that oh my goodness that's Dennis Hopper
1: yeah. television. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he, he did do a bunch of TV um, in the later part of his career because he also did Crash as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it was a bit of a kind of a surprise, but um, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So overall, then
0: you, you obviously devoted a lot of time, not only writing, but obviously the background and people who don't write don't understand that the writing part is often the quickest part of the whole project. It's getting, you know, fiction is one thing, but nonfiction, you, you, the amount of research you have to do and the amount of information, what kind of sources, were you able to mostly do this based on viewing films or did you have to do some extra research? I mean, you indicate you work in a library. And so so it's not a surprise that you might be able to do some research, but what yeah. kind of other research did you have to do for this book?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like initially uh, the research was just watching movies, but as um i kind of tried to fill in some of the gaps um you know i i looked back at some hopper biographies that were published in the 1980s um and then uh, when he died in uh, 2011 actually sorry no uh, i don't think he died in 2011. he died in um, 2009 uh, yeah 2009 um there was a bit of a change in perspective of of, of what hopper uh, who Hopper was, and um uh, you know, he was still regarded as an actor, but all of a sudden, there was a lot of talk about his, his art, artistic, artistic work, so his artwork and his photography. And, uh, you know, at that time, there was all of a sudden, uh, you know, a bunch of monographs that were published, featuring a lot of his uh, photography work. There's this, you know, there's a couple of actually really beautiful books that are published by Tashin, um, which are, you know, just incredible documents of the 1960s. Um, and then, then there was also exhibitions of his work, uh, initially in, in France and then in Australia and then in the US. And, uh, so yeah, like all of a sudden there was, uh, there was a lot more, um, kind of work out there based on, you know, uh, on his art, art artwork and, uh, on his life that kind of, um, that kind of shied away from his life as a, as a kind of, you know, his more debauched aspects of his life, the drink and the drugs and things like that. So that was pretty refreshing to get away from that and to kind of read up some stuff on that. So, yeah, you know, I initially, um uh, I, I got hold of those books and uh, would kind of immerse myself in those. And then, you know, the internet is great because pretty much any interview he ever did um, is on YouTube. Uh, or in or in print online so that was pretty good I could always sort of dip into any of these uh, interviews Um when it came to writing things about like the music uh, chapter again I kind of went back to uh, how it was at the beginning of the book and you know kind of immersed myself in some of the music that was coming out at that time and uh, uh, sorry the music that was in his in, in his films and some of the music videos that he appeared in and he even actually appeared on some people's songs as well so yeah, that was
0: kind of a fun chapter to kind of get into. So obviously you've devoted a lot of time to Dennis Hopper and, and you've developed a pretty good, uh, or, you know, a very good overview and, and specifics in this particular book. What other writing pro do you have other writing projects going on or, or are you, are you going to continue to write about film or, or, or are you writing about different things now?
1: Um, yeah, I'm I thinking, um, you know, I, I will kind of expand uh, away from film a little bit, but I've still got, um, you know, film projects, uh, writing projects on the go at the moment. Um, so uh, as it stands at the minute, um, film is just kind of where it's at. I think that the beauty of, uh, of film is that you, you can use it as a, a portal uh to look at other aspects of uh of you know our our society our culture and I think that's the interesting thing film is just a, an easy way in to look at different things um so actually you know I've got um I have a book another book coming out next year um again with zero books um that's all about dirty dancing so that'll be fun
0: yeah <laughs> It's slightly different from writing about Dennis Hopper, but definitely,
1: but I agree slightly different, yeah, <laughs> well, you know um you know that 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 particular film, Dirty Dancing, has kind of haunted me throughout my entire life. you know it's one of those films that I was introduced to where you know at a, at a very young age, probably by my sister, and then you know subsequently, you know, girlfriends. Uh, we, you know, you, you have to do that as a male, right? You've got to sit down and watch those kind of films with your with your girlfriend or your wife. But Dirty Dancing has, uh, you know, over the years has just kind of opened up to me a little bit more. There's a lot going on in that film. So maybe, maybe one, you know, when it's out next year, maybe I can speak to you about that as well.
0: And that'd be great because as I what? say, I think you're absolutely right. And it's one of the things in every, virtually every person I've talked to in my interviews when we talk about either a filmmaker or a film, film, probably more than any other, I think, more than any other genre of art, uh most mirrors society. Um, yeah. Because it becomes the way, I mean, I'm not saying music doesn't have its its points and live theater does as well, but there's just something about film or, or you know, in these days video where it's, you, you can watch a film and often figure out its time period just from watching the film. If you don't give it any hint, without any hints or any background, other than just show the film, even, you often can pretty much figure out when it was filmed, you know, what time period it came out, even if it's supposed to be a period piece.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, totally agree. Well,
0: I really enjoyed talking to you about this book, and I hope people... I definitely think people need to not only reach out and read the book, but just as importantly, take a chance, take a second to more than a second, take some time to to revisit Dennis Hopper and don't just remember him for the most obvious performances. Mm-hmm. Go back and try to find some of the more unusual choices he made. And, and some of those films that you believe in particular, he deserves to be remembered for just as much as, as the, the other ones.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, he, he's really being revisited, I think, as a, as a photographer and artist, um, in the last sort of five years, you know, since his death. And, uh, yeah, you know, he's had countless, you know, exhibitions of his work and, uh, count, I mean, you know, five or six monographs published in the last, uh, five years too of his work, of his artwork. But, you know, there is a, a great deal of artistic work within his films as well, which I think, you know, uh, it shouldn't be forgotten and that should definitely be revisited for sure. So, yeah. Well,
0: I enjoyed talking to you. And like I said before, hopefully when your next book comes out, you'll keep me in mind and we'll do another interview. We'll talk about Dirty Dancing.
1: Absolutely. That sounds great, Joel. Thanks a lot. Yeah, take care now. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed my talk with Steve and that you reach out to better understand why Hopper was such a great film artist. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back
1: soon with more New Books, in film.